Welcome to the High Premises Files podcast with me, your presenter, Charlotte Howden. I'm an HG campaigner and the co-producer and presenter of the world's first documentary about hyperemesis. Sick, the battle against HG is available now on Prime Video in the UK and the US with other countries following soon. The High Premises Files podcast acts as a voice for all women who are currently suffering with or who have survived High Premises Gravidarum. On today's podcast, I'm joined by Jess. Jess is a mother of two boys and lives in Canberra, Australia. Her high-premises journey started in 2013. After a barbecue with friends, Jess, along with most of the people at the barbecue, all came down with gastroenteritis. Also, she thought. Whilst everyone else recovered, Jess did not, and realising her period was late, she took a pregnancy test and it was positive. At four weeks pregnant, she was admitted to hospital already unable to keep anything down and severely dehydrated. At five weeks, she made the decision to tell her family that she was pregnant. It was becoming difficult already to keep it a secret and she knew that she was going to need their support. This is Jess's high premises story. So Jess, what was it like telling your family so early on? You know, did, did you feel like you would have liked to have kept it private for longer, but you just had no choice but to tell them? Um, as a family, as a whole, we're fairly close-knit. So we, you know, we tell each other the good and the bad and our day-to-day lives. I'm sure there's a message or a call every day between us. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't so much that I had an intention on not telling them straight away, mm-hmm. but I was hoping for more of a glamorous announcement. Yeah, which is what most pregnant women get to do, isn't it? Most of the time, yes, there's this, you know, big, wonderful announcement, whereas mine was, come for dinner. I have news to tell you. Yeah. Well, if it makes you feel any better, I told uh, my in-laws from the hospital bed because we were due to go to my mother-in-law's, I think it was her 65th birthday party. Um, And we were like, I was so desperately trying to get to that party and make this big announcement on her birthday. It was going to be so wonderful. And I was like, we're never going to make it. So we just had to call her from the hospital. And it was just, it was, you know, it was lovely. But I was like, oh, this is the worst way to tell someone. And it wasn't the way that you had intended or had envisioned on how to tell them this very exciting news. Exactly. No, I do remember actually telling my parents um, they came for dinner and we told them. And once, you know, everyone had cried and hugged and, you know, all the excitement had kind of passed, my dad actually turned to me and he asked me had I been sick and I was thinking to myself, what a strange question. Like that's such an odd question to ask, very bizarre. Um, And he was looking at my mum while asking me this and I was like thinking to myself, something's going on here. And then I found out that my mum had actually been really sick during pregnancy as well but had never mentioned it to my sister or I. Wow, that is really interesting. So, I mean, without, you know, giving away your age or talking about a certain decade or anything, but does she ever get any indication that she too might have had high premises or maybe a milder version or 
I believe that she knew that she had a milder version of it. Um, But I did ask her why she never mentioned this in passing to us. And she said that she wanted my sister and I to be able to make our own decision in life and not to have this in the back of our minds going, well, if I get pregnant, I'm going to be sick. That's such a mother thing to do, isn't it? To try and protect you. It is, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And and I feel for her because, you know, in fairness, there isn't really much you can do to prepare for a high premises pregnancy if you've not had one before because it's so difficult to even imagine what you're about to go through absolutely and she wouldn't have known that her children were going to suffer from it as well no no and well and suffer you did so you, you said to me that from from like five weeks onwards your high premises just spiraled out of control and being in hospital was becoming basically a regular occurrence so in the 37 weeks that you were pregnant, do you know how many times you were actually in hospital? I don't know an exact number, but I was average, averaging between one to three admissions a week and they could vary. So one, some could be just an overnight stay and then some of them could be like a three to a four night stint, possibly longer. So it's quite fair to say that you probably spent the majority of your pregnancy then in hospital. I would probably say about 75 to 80% I was in hospital. And what was your route to admission then? Because I know a lot of women experience the kind of, you know, you end up in A&E or the emergency room or the emergency department, and then you have to wait to be assessed. And then eventually you might get transferred to an early pregnancy unit or a maternity assessment unit. Is, you know, was, was that how you were basically getting access to treatment? yes and no so with my first um I was kind of going into it very blindly really not knowing what I was meant to be doing um so most of my time it was emergency then short stay short stay could have been just an overnight admission if it was more than overnight or if I was really dehydrated I'd be moved up to MAU straight away with my second pregnancy I was so overly prepared. I had my doctor write a letter. So I would carry this letter around with me everywhere. And basically it stated what hyperemesis was and what I needed. Um, so I would present that letter to the triage and I would be in within seconds. I would have drips in me. I would have on Danzatron through the drip going. Um, and that worked a lot more efficient. You know what? That's incredible, and that's a really good piece of advice, actually, for anyone listening. So, if you can get your doctor to do that, I know not all will, um, but that—I mean, it's like a little high-premises passport, isn't it? It lets you into places. Absolutely. You know, you don't have access to, um, which you should do automatically. But we all know the troubles with it. So, but and when you turn up to emergency, you're so incredibly dehydrated. You're not thinking straightly. Um, you just, you know, half the time you're about to pass out because you've literally got nothing in you. So just being able to hand over a, a form and say, read, this is what I have. Help me. Yeah, absolutely. And in that first pregnancy, though, did it ever get to that point where because they knew you so much, it was just it was a lot quicker to get you in? Um, to the place that you needed to be or did you feel like you had to fight quite a lot throughout the pregnancy to get the treatment to begin with there was a lot of fighting um at first you know they kind of just 
pastas as just bad morning sickness. Um, and then I was told that it was high paramesis. Um, but every visit was completely different. You know, sometimes I would drive myself. Sometimes my husband would drive me. Occasionally my mum would come and pick me up and drive me. And there was a couple of times where I passed out in the emergency room. And that's just the worst place to be, isn't it? I mean, when you pass out, I'm sure it does draw attention. But the point is that you don't need to get to that state. You shouldn't be getting to that. No, point. you don't want to be at that point either. No, absolutely. All the drugs that were safe for Jess to take daily, she did. She was on Dancitron, Maxilon, Stematil and B6, just to name a few. And yet feeding and drinking water was impossible. She describes water as her worst enemy. One sip and she would spend the next hour being sick. So you're on um, quite a few different medications, which again, for, for a lot of women is, is quite common and managing those and seeing what's working, what's not. And I just wondered, you know, what, given all the medication you were on, you were really trying to manage so that you could have some kind of quality of life. But I mean, what was that quality of life? Were you still able to eat or drink anything? Um, yes. Um, with my, and I kind of found that I went through stages mm. where I was able to eat more. And then, you know, two weeks later, I could hardly eat anything because the sickness had ramped up. Um, so every day was different. Um, in my first pregnancy, I found that McDonald's cheeseburgers <laughs> stayed down and it could take an hour to eat the cheeseburger, but it stayed down and frozen Coke. So frozen or Coke is, it helps nausea. Yeah. So, and I don't know, something about really cold drinks just helped me and I know it has helped another another couple of Aussies as well um, with the hyperemesis. Um, round two, so with my second pregnancy, it changed a lot. Um, so I would have my safe foods that I used to call it yeah. and they could last for two weeks or a week, couple of days. Um, so watermelon was my go-to, but it had to be frozen watermelon. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I can't stand the smell or the look of watermelon. Um, and corn chips, and that lasted a couple of weeks. So it really is, I mean, what you're describing, it's just that you put all your hope into a safe food, don't you? But you kind of learn quite quickly that, you you, you know, your days are numbered. You don't know how long you're going to have until that's not safe anymore. And that's a really mind-changing way to live, isn't it? It alters, it does alter your quality of life, not knowing exactly when what should keep, uh, should stay down is, is suddenly not going to anymore. No, and you just you somehow just know as well. Mm-hmm. So you could smell a particular type of food or you could take a mouthful and you just know that that was not a good choice. Yeah, yeah. So was it in your first pregnancy that they actually decided to um, start tube feeding you? Yes, so it was in my first pregnancy. I didn't have a tube, um, wasn't tube fed in my second, um, but... It was just horrible. It was uncomfortable. It was irritable. Um, it lasted maybe 10 days. It just, it was horrendous. And how many weeks pregnant were you when they decided to put that in? Um, I think I was about 11 or 12 weeks. Oh, so really early then. and Really early and could not keep a single thing down. And 
I'm assuming because it was for 10 days, that was their way of going, right, we have to get something into you because the medication is maybe taking its time to stay in you and for your body to get used to it to enable you to eat. And this really was the only way that they could do it. Absolutely. And I noticed that in the five years between both of my children that the medication has come a long way. Mm. So to begin with, I was on the Ondansetron wafers and the wafers would just make me vomit even more. Mm. Whereas in my second pregnancy, I was taking Ondansetron tablets and they seemed to stay down, say, 90% of the time. I mean, they're very, very small, aren't they? A lot of time people think when you're taking medication, there's these really big, um, big tablets. They are really, really very small compared to the tiny. tiny. Yeah, so it is a lot easier if you can just get something to stay down, even if it's just one of them, and then you slightly start to maybe feel better, and then you can start ramping up the full dosage. And then once you've got that, you know, you're on a better road to recovery then. Not all women. It doesn't work for all women. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, the wafers just sound... Oh, it makes me feel sick now thinking about oh, they were they were disgusting. Yeah. I <laughs> but when I was in hospital, it was through a drip. So mm. it worked quicker, it was more efficient. Yeah. But it was just spending that time in the hospital, you know, having to go through the processes to actually get the medication whilst you're in there. And how are your, you know, your friends and your family reacting to this? Because one part of me thinks once they may have found out that you had to be tube fed, I mean that surely to a lot of people goes oh my god this is really serious perhaps we hadn't taken this as seriously before because she physically is now having to have her food you know via her nose which is horrendous I'm assuming therefore that they they started to take this this more seriously would that be fair to say absolutely so my family were amazing um they were really supportive um, I think at first they were like, oh, it's just going to pass, but then it just stayed. Um, and it was a learning adventure for all of us. My, I, so I spoke to my husband yesterday and I asked him, you know, how did you feel about it? And he said that it was hard and that he was he was sad to watch me go through this, but he also found that he was always really worried and really concerned um, every time that I'd step out in public, Um, mainly because the symptoms can change so quickly. So you can be having a really great day, um, hasn't vomited, you know, in a couple of hours, so you think that you can go out for the day, but you could all of a sudden start projectile vomiting or you could faint, you know, you could smell something and it just sets you off altogether. Yeah, it's hard. Asking your partner's perspective is always difficult, isn't it? Because you do live through very different things, although you're going through the same thing. And for him, it must have been a, I just wanted to protect you and I didn't want you to be in a situation where you would then be fainting or being sick because that's not nice. Absolutely. And um, from my friend's point of view, um, I had two really good girlfriends who were also pregnant at the same time. And I was always so envious of them because one of them was just tired and one of them was just hungry. And I was like, I would be happy with either of those. (laughs) I know. And the thing is, we know deep down it's not their fault and we wouldn't wish high premises that you wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy so you certainly wouldn't wish it on your friends but Absolutely not. it's so hard isn't it when you've got such a 
you know, if you have friends with children, that's a little bit different. I mean, they might talk about their pregnancies to you, but when you can physically see, you know, them developing, growing, blossoming, and you, it's just such a direct comparison to what you're going through, it does mentally affect you, I think. It did with me anyway. Oh, absolutely. Even just down to, you know, they look, um, you know, glowing and, like, they've got, like, you know, meat on them whereas you know you're feeling so gaunt and gray and white and you just you look miserable and you look really unwell just all the time Mm. do you think it was difficult for them to understand what you were going through because they could they must have been looking at their own pregnancies thinking but it's so easy like why is it so hard for her like because you know I'm a little bit tired or I'm always hungry do you think it was hard for them absolutely and I think in society in general, it's really hard to understand. I think unless you are going through hyperemesis or living in the same house with someone, going through it, you'll never completely understand. No, and I think, you know, because um, I get asked a lot, you know, any interview I do, or, you know, how would you describe hyperemesis? And I really hate that question because I can never do it justice. And, you know, the comparison. No, you can't. You know, you just, it's not. But also the lack of knowledge. That's what frustrates me is that people just don't know about high promises. Yeah, yeah. And I know we talk about it a lot, and especially if you're in the HD community. So it does feel like, you know, I see it all the time, but then I remember I'm in my bubble of other high promises women. So that's why they all know about it. But, you know, yeah, absolutely. you don't have to go far on Instagram to find another group of people who probably never heard of it. Um, and that is frustrating, right? At 20 weeks pregnant, Jess received some upsetting news. Her son had bilateral talipes, which is clubfoot. In her own words, this was just the icing on the cake. And this, along with having no connection at the time to her son, Difficulty trying to continue working and basically just hating her life made Jess very depressed. Jess, when you received the news that your son would be born with a clubfoot, what was your initial response and your initial feelings? Um, So I found out that my oldest son was going to be born with clubfoot um, at 20 weeks through our 20-week scan. And I guess I was, well, I'd never heard of Clubfoot, um, but I was scared, nervous. Um, I never thought to myself, I've done this. Um, I never blamed myself for it, but I did worry about what his future was going to hold, what treatment was available. Um, so it was quite a daunting time during the pregnancy and being so sick it was just like oh there's something else on top of it yeah I mean you described it as the icing on the cake didn't you when when we spoke absolutely I can imagine that and I think it's um it's just another thing that you didn't need and it just adds to the trauma of an already really horrendous pregnancy um but but I wonder at the time I mean were they were they reassuring in the fact that you know, despite you had this diagnosis that, you know, your son would be able to lead a normal life and they, they might be able to correct the foot. Um, did they, you know, did they tell you how they were going to treat it? Did you feel like you had the knowledge you needed to kind of accept that diagnosis? 
So being in Australia, we were really lucky with that. We do have physio teams and specialists who deal with um, clubfoot. So I knew that he would be able to lead a normal life. Um, we started meetings with the physio about 22 or 23 weeks um, during the pregnancy mm. and we had bounced um, ideas on different treatment and um, the options that were available to us. But until he was born, we wouldn't actually know what treatment he was going to need. Um, So treatment started for my son at around five weeks Mm -hmm. and it's still ongoing today. And how old is he now? He's six. Six, okay. Okay, so it's a long process then. but Absolutely. We travel between Canberra and Sydney's Children's Hospital um, and in Sydney, that's where his specialist and surgeon is based and in terms of you know his, his future and everything I mean he you know is the foot going to be okay are they going to manage to um correct it or get it to a you know a position whereby he will lead a completely normal life oh absolutely if you did not know that he had club foot you would never know mm-hmm. so unless I say something or unless he mentions it you'll never know I'm so pleased to hear Jess say that she does not feel guilty and that she hasn't blamed herself for her son's diagnosis. I know too well how difficult it is to take medication when you're pregnant, but in my case, I really had no other option. And I truly believe that the benefits were going to outweigh any risks. I hear a lot of women asking questions on high premises chat forums and in groups and Women do actually message me privately and ask about medication. And I always say, one, I'm not a doctor. Two, your doctor should be talking to you about any side effects of any medication that you're on. And three, I've already said it, but I'm going to say it again. The benefits outweigh the risks. Now, that might not always be the case. You might feel that with some medications where you might feel there's a higher risk, that you can actually survive without those and decide not to take them. And of course, that's completely your decision. For me, though, without ondansetron and metoclopramide, I would have terminated my pregnancy. And that, of course, as an outcome for my son, well, I can't imagine that now. So please just be reassured. And if you have any questions or concerns about your medication, do speak to your doctor. Stay away from Google because Google isn't the most hmm, robust search engine for showing you a balanced argument. And be very aware that your local high premises charities will update you on new and developing research. And the most up to date research we have specifically to the medication on Downsetron, which is also known as Zofran, is that the risk is minimal. It's minuscule. And that's specifically for cleft oral palate. When you're, you know, that that sick, you you take the medication to survive at the end of the day. Absolutely. You just, in my opinion, I had no option. I think that's so important that you say that because I do feel like some women, you know, 
something might you know something might happen um, you know cleft palate is is something that people talk about a lot in the hd community or um specific defects with the heart and it's always straight away well, it must have been the medication it's my fault and i think what we do need to remember and i always advocate for this is that the benefits outweigh the risks and if the alternative like for some women in our community is to have a termination you know that's not what any of us want for any woman who doesn't want to have a termination and I think that another thing that women have to remember is that we don't fully know what happens when we have hyperemesis in terms of the fact spending the first trimester not being able to eat or drink anything. We still don't fully understand what effect that has on the child. And perhaps it's more likely that our nutritious deficiencies, as it were, the fact that we can't take um, prenatal vitamins and that kind of thing could also be having um, you know, effects on on babies, and it's not necessarily always the medication. Women need to remember that the medication that is offered to us in the hospitals and prescribed by our GPs yeah. are safe. So they're not offering us something that's not in the category of safety during pregnancies. Otherwise, it wouldn't be prescribed to you. Absolutely, and as you know. Um, sometimes even getting that medication is such a fight. So when you do actually have access to it, you're 100% correct. They're not going to give you something that is not safe to take in pregnancy. Um, I think where some women get maybe confused is that a lot of these medications aren't licensed in pregnancy purely because women who are pregnant are always excluded from drug trials. And so it's almost impossible to say, that anything can be taken in pregnancy because women aren't in those studies. But the data we have from Absolutely. women, you know, actually taking the medication and outcomes being fine, that's the data that we can we can draw on. And until pregnant women are included in all trials, which I don't necessarily think will ever happen, um, it's something we're seeing right now, isn't it, with the um, the COVID vaccine? Pregnant women weren't part of of, of that trial, so. They're now being told, or oh, don't take the vaccine while you're pregnant because they weren't included. So it, it's a very grey area, but you're 100% right to say that doctors would not prescribe you something. They might say to you it's not licensed in pregnancy and the benefits, in my opinion, always, out, always outweigh the risks. So true. At 35 weeks pregnant, Jess was told that she would not be able to have a vaginal birth due to her son being too big. This was another blow. Another decision taken out of her control due to hyperemesis. She felt robbed. She was instead to have a planned C-section at 38 weeks pregnant, which at least did give her the time to get her head around it and she could plan for the arrival of her son. That same day, everything changed. She was called and told that she had to come back in straight away to be given steroid injections as they were now going to be delivering her son the next day your first son's birth was really quite traumatic wasn't it tell me about um receiving that really scary phone call saying you know oh what we had planned to do is now not happening you need to get yourself back into hospital absolutely so I was told at 36 weeks that having a natural birth was not an option that my son was far too big um and literally just would not fit. Um, and so 
at 36 and six days, I had a meeting with the obstetrician at the hospital and we had a great chat and booked in for the following week at 38 weeks for a cesarean. Um, I headed back to work, finalising my maternity leave. So I wasn't paying attention to my, my mobile. And I had about 20 missed calls from a private number. And I'd finished up on the phone to the HR department and my mum called. She's like, you need to call the hospital. They've called me. They are trying to get in contact with you. So I've called the hospital and the obstetrician who was going to deliver my son the next day um, said, you need to come to the hospital. We've decided to deliver him tomorrow as the size of him is quite worrying. Um, So you need to come in and have steroids to help him breathe tomorrow. Wow. So I was very underprepared. I had nothing packed for a hospital bag, let alone clothes to have a cesarean. And it was just, Everything was kind of just going everywhere. And the fact of the matter is, you know, you knew that that was quite serious and you needed to do that. But I'm sure in the back of your mind, you were thinking, okay, well, first of all, I didn't, you know, I was told I couldn't have a vaginal birth, which is what I wanted to do. Then I made peace with the fact that I was going to have a C-section in, you know, about two weeks time. And, you know, there's a benefit of that. I get to plan and know exactly when my baby's coming, which is great. Um, And then literally within a couple of hours, getting phone calls saying, no, it's all happening tomorrow. I mean, that must have been, that must have taken you a while to get your your head around that. It was just, it was just, it didn't feel real. It was just, everything just seemed so fast. And how was the unplanned C-section in the end then? Well, it was kind of planned, wasn't it? You knew it was coming, but it was just. I knew it was coming. I just didn't realise how fast it was coming. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Look, it was absolutely fine. I had no dramas with the cesarean. Um, I think going through hyperemesis for so long that when I was able to get up from the cesarean and walk around and drink water, I just, I felt normal. I felt human. I had energy. I was able to eat. It was amazing. Was it that quick for you as soon as he was out? It went back. It was almost instant. Yeah. When I was in recovery, I asked for water and it stayed down. It was just, it was amazing. I know. know. So do you mind uh, me asking then, how how big was he? So he was 3.8 at 37 weeks, exactly. Okay. So he wasn't huge, but he was a decent size. He was a decent size. (laughs) He was a decent size. Again, it's really lovely to hear because you know, because of what we go through with hyperemesis, um, some women can experience that they're, you know, they have quite low birth weights because they've not had the nutrition. So I suppose that was a good thing to hear from you that you thought, wow, he really is, he's a good size. He's, he's you know, healthy. He was a very good size. He was very healthy. I wonder when you were starting to think about having a second how difficult was that decision for you to make? Not just because of what, you know, your son was going through, which is obviously um, a commitment and a responsibility you now have. It takes, you know, it takes your time, but also because of the fact that it's very likely that you would have high premises again. Well, 
it took five years for me to get the courage to go back. Yeah. And the push was my son continuously asking for a sibling. Yes, they're very um, good. Mine does the same. They're very convincing. <laughs> um, but deep down, I always knew I wanted two children. Yeah. Um, but it was just, it's a mental game mm. because you know what the next nine months is going to bring. Mm. You know that there'll be no social activities, that you'll have your head in a toilet for nine months straight. You won't be present for your other children or your family. Everything gets put on hold. Mm-hmm. So it was a mental and a physical game to get to having number two. Yeah. One thing I just wanted to quickly touch on, um, you know, with this first pregnancy, you weren't prepared for what was going to happen. You know, we talked about the tube feeding the mixtures of medications, um, the on and off roller coaster of foods that will won't, won't will work won't work continuously. How did you? I mean, I assume you, you were working at this time. You know, how did you manage to to kind of keep keep going with that and keep working and you know bringing money into the household, all the things that you were able to do before you were pregnant? Um, so with my first pregnancy, it was really hard. Um, and I ended up having to take a lot of leave without pay. Yeah. Um, which was, it was an interesting time. With my second pregnancy, my, I, I was still in, uh, working for the same company. So my manager had seen what I had been through with my first pregnancy. So when I said to him, hey, I'm pregnant and I'm really sick again, he was very understanding and he allowed me to work from home for my entire pregnancy. So my second pregnancy was a lot easier to manage in that term. Now, obviously, you didn't know he was going to say that before you got pregnant, but and leading into the absolutely not no no and leading into the next question you know you have already said that your second pregnancy you were over prepared I love that term that is a fantastic term I'm going to steal it from you um and so that must have been a nice icing on the cake because you couldn't prepare for him to say that and so then when he did that just added into you know your over preparation of great I don't need to worry about work and I've got everything else like I can control is is under control um so I just wondered you know just advice really for other women how did you over prepare yourself for that second pregnancy sure so for my second pregnancy I based everything that I had been through in my first pregnancy and what I needed to make sure that was going to be really easy to continue with so I took out insurances Um, to cover my wage so it was a medical insurance that I took out um, for income protection Um, and it took a number of months to get it approved because it was a pre-existing condition that's how they the insurance company saw it as Um, but they did in the end approve it so I had insurances taken out I had 
medication or ready to go. Um, my doctor kind of had an inkling of what was going on. Um, I, in, as soon as I did fall pregnant, I informed my son's school of what it was and what I needed from them in order to get him to and from school. Yeah. If he's going to be late, he may be late by half an hour, but it's only because I had my head stuck in a toilet yeah. all morning. Yeah. It, it wouldn't have been his fault, was it? It wasn't him not wanting to come to school. It's just that you physically had to manage getting him there around when you may or may not be sick. Absolutely. And also having lots of talks with my elder son mm. on that, you know, mummy is okay. She's just really unwell at the moment, mm. but she's okay. That's really good advice. I love the fact as well that you spoke to the school. I've not really thought of that before and just preparing them and saying, look, you know, and if there's any after school clubs or any kind of support that you've got within the school that we can use and, and also so they can keep an eye on him because I'm sure teachers pick up, they have to, that, you know, that's their job. They pick up on how children are feeling and if something's a little bit different or off so that they have that knowledge so they can prepare themselves for that as well. Absolutely. And also, you know, down to really little things. So, you know, I, when I was talking to the school, I said, you know, if I am running 20 minutes late, can you just watch him in the after school care? I am coming. Yeah. I just, I had a moment. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And of course, your high premises passport as well. Yes, absolutely. That's <laughs> the best thing that you can get. Jess's second birth was well, horrible. She had another emergency C-section, but this time it was very much a case of touch and go. She really didn't know whether her son would survive. How many weeks pregnant were you when you had to have your emergency C-section with your second son? Um, I was 37 weeks pregnant with my second son when I had an emergency caesarean. And what was it about, you know, the prognosis of, of your son's life, really? Because you mentioned to me that it was really touch and go, that C-section. And I just wondered um, if you knew why it was, you know, so critical that and why the C-section had to be an emergency and why the outcome was, was not looking good. I had gone into pre-labour at 30 weeks and they managed to stop him coming mm -hmm. um and then I went into pre-labor again at 34 weeks um and I was contracting but nothing was happening so they were happy for me to go home mm -hmm. then at 37 weeks I had been feeling funny during the day and was not feeling any movement but was feeling contractions so it was a very strange feeling mm. um and my husband kept saying I think you need to go to the hospital just go and get checked out but because I'd already been twice and nothing had happened I didn't want to bother anyone um my parents were overseas my sister was pregnant and not well either um so I didn't want to burden her with anything else so I decided to drive myself to the hospital and my husband stayed at home with my eldest son because it was quite late at night. It was around 9.30, 10 o'clock. Um, and they were so incredibly busy that night at the hospital. 
they had already delivered nine babies by the time they got to see me. So I was waiting about an hour at the hospital. Um, when I was seen to, seen just like a normal routine check, um, the midwife came in, did her assessment, said that she wanted a second opinion, like sometimes it's hard to find the heartbeat. The second midwife came in and then they said, oh, where's your husband? I said, oh, he's at home. And they said, I think it's time that you tell him to come in. I was like, okay, just casually going about it. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden there's the head obstetrician who was there for maybe a minute or two before code red was being yelled, category A was being yelled out, there were sirens going off all around me. Um, And from when he was, when he first arrived to see me, within 11 minutes my son was born. Wow. So he had not completely stopped breathing but it was dropping very quickly to a very dangerous level and they needed to get him out so I didn't know if I was going to wake up with a child or without a child oh you know listening to that story as well with everything that's going on in the world and I just think that midwife getting a second opinion you know not everyone everyone gets that and then the second midwife thinking, okay, this isn't right. And then the, do you know what I mean? And then you can see so many parts of your story. The hospital was busy, um, you know, almost. And with yourself, you're like, oh, I don't want to burden people. So many other things could have gone wrong, hadn't they? And I'm just so grateful and thankful that they didn't. And that's why you call him your miracle baby. Um, it's just an incredible story. And I'm just so grateful and thankful that, that he was okay. Yeah, he, he is my little miracle baby. Yeah, he would be. Did anyone ever say to you that, um, that you know, go, the, the kind of going into labour very early, especially the 30 weeks one, um, could have been down to the high premises? Or have you ever thought yourself, my body was, as much as you were much more prepared for the second pregnancy, you still had high premises, so you were still going through it? Um, all, all the time, even now. So my youngest is one and a half and it's almost a daily thought of what could have been different if the hyperemesis wasn't there did the children not have enough nutrition did they not get you know enough circulation like all these things that just you know play in your mind um but all the time I do wonder and I wonder if it's because we as the mothers lack in just your daily nutrients. I agree with you. And I think from a research point of view, we're really at the stage now where we, we need to know more about the effects of not having certain nutrients um, and being deficient in certain vitamins that we will naturally be because we're not taking in food, but at the same time, not making feel um, women feel guilty. It's exactly like you said, Jess, if you could only keep down a McDonald's cheeseburger, then that is your only option that, you know, <laughs> you physically can't say, oh, I'll go and try some grapes and some strawberries and I'll have a nice bit of sourdough bread and maybe some pasta and pesto because you're not going to keep it down. So there's no point. Absolutely. And what nutrition 
are you getting from a McDonald's cheeseburger that you're going to be passing on to your child who's currently developing? It's I, I don't know how they make McDonald's cheeseburgers, but from what I can maybe imagine, I mean, maybe some pro- there's going to be a little bit of protein in that meat, I would hope. But you're right, you know, it, what we are left with, our choices of what we can eat are generally quite fatty, um, kind of quite processed fast foods. I've, the watermelon obviously was, was great, but um, but what, what happens is that if that's all you can have, you, really, you just don't have any other choice, do you? No, absolutely not. So we're kind of damned if we do and damned if we don't, and that's just another pressure on women with high premises. So I think the research really, we need to be looking more into the nutrition. And then it would be lovely if every woman with high premises had a a dietitian or a nutritionist as part of their care team who can say okay try this try the shake let's try this you know someone who is going to almost take that pressure off you and help you to find those foods in the you know a, a simple way that you can keep down I think would be extremely beneficial it would be amazing yeah hopefully one day soon one day soon um so you have your miracle baby, you have your two gorgeous sons, you've survived high premises twice. I just wondered, are there, I mean, those are the incredible positive legacies, you have your two children, but are there any negative legacies now that you have been left with um, in terms of your health from high premises? Um, yes. Um, so I guess you've got the mental side of it as well, you know, it it never really goes away. It's always there. Um, and I get very anxious when people tell me that they're pregnant, like family and friends, I get very anxious because I don't want them to go through high paralysis. Yeah. Um, but I have burns down my esophagus um, from all the vomiting and the acid and the reflux. I did have tears in my stomach lining from all the vomiting and the um, and I'm on acid medication, um, which will probably be for life. Mm-hmm. And what does that medication do, sorry? It keeps the reflux right, away. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so that, yeah. Was, that was quite... You know, to have to take something for life is definitely a negative legacy, isn't it? I mean, I know it's helping you, but I'm assuming you didn't have reflux, reflux issues before your pregnancies. Never. No. Um, do you mind if I ask about your sister? Because you said that she was pregnant when you were pregnant with your second. And I just wondered, given this genetic link, if she too had high premises. Um, I think she did. Um not as severe Mm -hmm. and from memory I feel that her um her sickness came in stages so was there to begin with but she could still function and go to work Mm -hmm. um and then would have really bad weeks and then kind of eased off during the middle of her pregnancy but then I feel like it came back towards the end yeah yeah well, that, that definitely sounds like a, a form of hyperemesis, doesn't it? Um, like you said, possibly a milder one. Um, but that's really interesting to hear. 
So I think finally, it's a really unfair question, but I know a lot of women have this question in their head and they're thinking about it all the time because high premises does limit family size. So I just wondered if, you know, you think you could ever do this again or um, you are two and done? Uh-huh. Um, well, I know that I can get through it. I've done it twice now. So I know that there is an end. Um, but there's so much more that goes into having another hyperemesis pregnancy than just having a pregnancy. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's the mental, the physical part of having to deal with the hyperemesis and the pregnancy on its own. Yeah. Um, but I've also got two small children who they need my attention mm-hmm. and I can't be absent for nine months. No. no. Being pregnant is hard enough on its own with small children, let alone being in and out of hospital and not able to be up front and centre for them. Mm-hmm. But who knows what the future holds. I, <laughs> I don't. I don't think so, but, you know, happen you can never say never exactly unless you have high premises no I'm joking (laughs) exactly (laughs) that's exactly it Jess thank you so much for sharing your story with us it's been really interesting to talk to you um and you know to listen to to what you've been through and like I said you've got your two gorgeous sons which is wonderful um still still dealing with with some of the health legacies of hyperemesis um i really wish you and your your lovely family all the best and just want to really quickly finish on any advice that you haven't already given us um to women currently suffering with hyperemesis oh it it does end it like your dark days seem they seem really dark and it does feel like no one understands, but there is a community of hyperemesis women out there. So reach out because sometimes, you know, their safe foods could be your safe foods or the medication that their doctors are prescribing them may be your magical combination of medication that you need as well. Mm-hmm. But hold in there. It does get better. Thank you for listening to The Hyperemesis Files. If you have been affected by anything that has been spoken about in today's podcast, please visit your local hyperemesis charity or speak to a healthcare provider. For more information about the documentary Sick, The Battle Against HG, please visit www.thesickfilm.co.uk.